0: welcome to conversations in business with rsm where we talk to business leaders and experts to gain valuable insights that will help you move your business forward This afternoon, I'm in conversation with Professor Nicola Klein, and we're going to be discussing how to manage your brand and reputation in a crisis. For those of you who I've not met before, my name is Liz Pinnock. I'm a Director and Head of Legal at RSM South Africa. I'm also the National Head of Ethics, and internationally, I co-chair the RSM Legal Group. My professional focus is on corporate and commercial law, the restructuring of companies, transformation, and corporate governance. However, I've been reflecting lately between my trail running, lockdown, and working uh, during the course of the past few months, and I've often thought to myself, how would I manage and protect the reputation of RSM, its brand, and the tagline, the power of being understood in a time of crisis? RSM South Africa has had a few challenges over the course of its illustrious 81 years. So too more generally has the auditing and consulting profession. In particular, I have often thought whether I would have responded differently if I were part of the management team of KPMG. When the SAG Rogue unit report hit the newspaper headlines in 2014, where the independence of KPMG was questioned and where the findings of the report did not match the evidence. Or when, during 2018, the VBS bank saga directly implicated the audit partner of KPMG who signed off on the audit opinion after allegedly receiving loans from the bank. And then finally, if I was the deputy CEO of Grand Thornton, having to answer on live radio 702, the sexual harassment charges brought against a senior member of its forensics team. It just shows you that it can happen to the very best of us. A crisis can happen to the very best of organizations. And as one of the leaders of RSM, The responsibility on having to manage the RSM brand when that crisis strikes, to me, appears quite daunting. Having spent a number of years investing in and building the RSM brand, gaining the trust of our clients, our employees, our investors, and the broader community, I hope that as a leader, when that crisis strikes, I'd be able to manage it in a way that would build the RSM reputation deepen the trust of our clients and employees and find opportunities within the crisis for RSM. However, and I'm aware of this, on the flip side, there's always those naysayers, the PR companies, our external advisors, our PI insurers, who will have a very different perspective on how to manage the crisis. So against this backdrop, again, how would I deal with a crisis? So during lockdown, it came as a very pleasant surprise to me one evening. And I was listening to a money show hosted by Bruce Whitfield, a very uh, popular radio presenter on 702. And he was interviewing Professor Nicola Klein, on a book that she has co-authored with Frances Heard entitled, When Crisis Strikes, 10 Rules to Survive and Avoid a Reputation Disaster. I listened in relief and excitement to the interview and thought that finally someone had written a practical book for leaders on how to manage their brands and reputation in a crisis. So it gives me the great pleasure this afternoon to introduce Professor Professor Nicola Klein. Nicola is currently on a well-deserved sabbatical Uh, currently um, residing in the Netherlands, having just recently stepped down as the Dean of the Gibbs Business School in South Africa. She, She will shortly be appointed as the Dean of Executive Education, Executive Programs and the MBA course at the Rotterdam University in the Netherlands. Nicola's field field of expertise is in corporate branding and reputation management. During her time at Gibbs, she worked with organizations to prevent crises. She hosted those going through the crises and used her knowledge as an academic and as an organizational leader to make sense of why things go wrong and how to recover therefrom. So Nicola, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Liz. It's lovely
1: to, lovely to be here, lovely to be engaging with everybody. And uh, thank you for inviting me to speak about, a, a, I think, a really important topic. You know, when we wrote the book and published this book on uh, when crisis strikes, everybody said, how did you know about COVID-19? And we said, no, this isn't actually about COVID-19, although the rules apply. But um, it is about how do we navigate through corporate crises? So I'm delighted to be here and sharing with everybody today.
0: Thanks Nicola, and, and I suppose uh, that leads me into my first question, so, so, so given the challenges faced today by corporates, government entities, state-owned entities, why was it important to write the book? I mean it obviously just didn't come about because of COVID-19, it has been a long time in the making. I, absolutely not, and, and I think what's, uh, what's important um, about the
1: book because I actually wasn't the force behind the book. My co-author, Frances Heard, who's a well-known journalist, uh, was a student of mine at Gibbs. I supervised her MBA research report. And in that, she investigated uh, the relationships that CEOs build with journalists and whether that led to them being treated any differently. Uh, and then Frances came to me after a couple of years, and she said to me, you know, all of these corporate crises, what's your making? And I said, I'm very concerned because a, I'm obviously concerned about ethical breaches, and, and I don't think a book can make a leader more ethical, but I do think that another area that really has concerned me is how so often good leaders and competent leaders uh, encounter a crisis, suddenly the curtains are pulled back, there are all sorts of questions being asked by their different stakeholders and by media, and they handle them so badly. So uh, Francis said, let's write a book. And I said, absolutely not. I'm way too busy to write a book. Anyway, Frances is not a journalist for nothing. She's, <laughs> she's, she's very, very persuasive. And uh, so last year in about, um, when was it? We started writing in about August. Uh, and, and of course, we had a lot of material. It's very concerning just how yeah. many... Uh, crises we've seen and, and I think we must be careful, this is not a uniquely South African or African phenomenon, but certainly um, a number of the corporate governance issues that have been linked um, to state capture in South Africa made it very fertile ground.
0: Yeah, no, no thanks for that Nicola and, and I suppose um, it, it, when I read the book it was so practical um and it really resonated with me on how you could you could look at something and really distill the essence of of what the leaders need to deal with so so perhaps you could you could just take us through your approach in writing the book and who is it targeted at well i'm glad it's practical
1: because it's definitely targeted at um, leaders running businesses, but ultimately anybody who needs to protect a corporate reputation, and I think that's that's mm. all of us. It's a personal reputation um, as well. There are, are good guidelines here, and increasingly, you know, um, it's not just a question of the CEO understanding what happens here. If employees, um, professional, particularly in professional services, anybody who's engaging. Uh, with publics, with clients, with regulators, et cetera, really need to understand the role that they can play in uh, preventing crises first and foremost, but also that when they do hit, um, how they can support their organization and how the organization needs to support them. So um, starting it was was fascinating because I think when a lot of academics write books, they start with their area of expertise. And Francis and I decided that what we wanted to do was start off with cases of poor crisis management. Uh, And we really started from there. So we spent a lot of time gathering secondary data. We didn't do any interviews for this book other than one or two experts in the field. Uh, We really limited it. So so we didn't want to go and, for example, speak to Tiger Brands or KPMG. We simply took what was covered in the media and in available information and started trying to analyze that and see whether there were key learnings that went across cases. Um, And from there, it was then a question of trying to reconcile what the academic literature says. Um, And and the academic literature around crisis management is is actually quite split up. So my area is much more around the um, corporate branding and reputation management, but probably more around communication. There's another whole field, and it's one that I've become so interested in, which is the, the management internally. Uh, And and that's also something that has to be thought about. So we hope we've pulled something together that has this good mix of um, these principles with practical explanatory examples, which took a lot of research and it was fantastic working with a journalist of Francis's caliber, um, but also augmented in a very user-friendly way with academic theory and academic findings um, and trying to pull those together into these 10 principles.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things that I quite liked is at the end of each section, we either had um, sort of a word from behind the dean's desk mm-hmm. or we had a word from Francis from behind the mic and sort of your, your completely different perspectives from an academic point of view and from, from a, a fantastic uh, journalist and just bringing these ideas together quite nicely in the book. And, and that for me was fantastic. Yeah, thank you for that
1: feedback. Um, you know, just to comment on when you write a book, you have to decide what voice you're writing on. So we kept it a little Mm. more objective, but this was a chance for us to each tell our own stories. You know, and for me, the story wasn't even as a professor. It was as somebody who's managing an organization at that point of over 200 people um, and and the learnings that I had um, so it was it was a great opportunity again to sort of vest in the in the practical and talk about things that were dear to us as well
0: oh that's great thanks Nicola and it was really great and what I what I'd also one aspect of the book where I think you and Francis had a completely different view on um, and then maybe you kind of Found each other is, um, is y- y- you focus on 10 rules. And, and I just love the way you navigated this uh, academically, where you folk where, where Frances said, no, she wanted to write a book on rules. And, and you looked at it and you thought, mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's perhaps an oversimplification of it. And, mm. and, and that got me thinking, well, um, is it that simple or, or is each crisis more complex than that? So I suppose it comes from a little bit of um,
1: what I know around ethics and how you solve ethical dilemmas. And um, if you look at different branches of ethical reasoning, a a deontological branch is very rules-based. So you take an awful lot of time, you set the rules, and you stick to the rules. Now, we all know that there are ways around rules. We also know that rules can't accommodate the complexity of every situation. Um, And so, um, from a teleological perspective, this question of what is the end point, who do you hurt and who do you harm, how do you weigh up, and I I think what becomes really important is for each of us as leaders and managers, um, we have to weigh up the impact on different stakeholder groups. We, we can't mm. simply serve one stakeholder group. So it was, I think, a lot easier at a point where everything was driven around the shareholder or profitability and do what you can to protect mm-hmm. long-term profitability, and it's as simple as that. We know that inherent in managing corporate reputation is weighing up these needs of these different stakeholders. So when Francis said, we're gonna call them rules, I don't know, maybe I'm also just, you know, <laughs> bit, of, bit of a heretic. The moment somebody says, this is a rule, I I'm mean, that doesn't make sense in this case. Um, so yeah, like for it. me, it was much more around guiding principles. And um, I was actually speaking to somebody about the book yesterday, and they said, but do these rules apply across different cultures and contexts? And mm. I said, I, I believe they do, but they're nuanced. So issues, for example, about how might you apologize or when would you expect to see a leader resign versus apologize, versus just pretend nothing's happened. I think there are sort of cultural nuances that need to be traversed, but increasingly we're operating in a global environment and we need to be aware that what we do in Cairo or in Cape Town is going to be picked up, um, you know, in, in Canada, China and
0: Camden Town. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> Before we go into the rules, Nicola, and this is also one of the fascinating uh, sort of nuances in your book is that do you get different types of crises and can any misstep in how you manage a crisis result in a reputation disaster or is there a difference? And and I felt in some of your case studies, um, as they were managing the crisis, people were learning in a good way to manage the crisis and actually turned around and said, you know, I've I've screwed up, I got it wrong, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So there's no such thing as a standard crisis. Um, I think that
1: uh, stakeholders respond differently to different kinds of crises and we can differentiate on multiple dimensions. So perhaps let me think about a couple that I think are most useful. I think the first thing is that you can differentiate between a technical crisis. You got something wrong, Mm -hmm. you made a mistake versus a crisis of ethics or a crisis Mm -hmm. of values. Um, And and often these crises of values are not a single once-off crisis. In fact, generally, when you have a company that is seen as good – and ethical, when there is one single isolated case of ethical misbehavior, provided it's properly dealt with, um, publics are willing to tolerate that. Generally, when it's a technical crisis, it's much easier to say, I'm sorry, we got it wrong. Um, We've learned a lot, we've moved on um it's also perhaps also linked to if you were to see it on a two by two axis so there's technical crises and values crises i would argue that values and ethical crises are always of an organization's own making but sometimes Mm. a technical crisis can be caused internally but it can be caused externally um let me give examples um so if i take something like liberty the insurer that was hacked a couple of years ago Um, And I actually thought it was a crisis that was very, very well managed. I thought the CEO handled um, phenomenally, followed all of the principles. Um, If we look, that was Dave Munro, if we look at um, that crisis, that crisis was not of Liberty's own making. Now, you could Mm. argue maybe their firewalls needed to be better, maybe there were certain things. But the point is, most of our businesses at some point are going to get hacked. It's how we handle. It doesn't compare to the nature of a KPMG crisis, which really was a deep-seated crisis of, of ethics. So you mentioned Grant Thornton just now. And to me, that was also yeah. the, the rot and the problems lay internally. So what we find yeah. is publics are much more forgiving about a technical crisis than they are about um, about a crisis of values. Um, you know, I, I, I guess there are all sorts of other other ways that one can sort of slice and dice these things and, and perhaps we'll speak about them more when we go into the rules mm-hmm. and start reflecting on on how to handle given the kind of crisis it is
0: no thanks Nicola um in reading uh the book um uh there were definitely three rules that resonated with me uh, rule one was stop the harm Rule two, respond quickly and conspicuously, and rule five, after ethical breaches, excise. And, and perhaps, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's just look at rule one and sure. uh, stop the harm. And, and maybe just take us through sort of a brief example and then how you manage to distill the rule.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna give you a
0: couple I'm gonna give you a couple of examples and this was a rule where Francis
1: and I also disagreed because she won on this one. She called it stop <laughs> the harm. And I said, you know, it's 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 naive to think you can just stop the harm. But I think what you have to be acutely conscious of is when something goes wrong, who is being harmed and how do we limit it. Because there are going to be cases if you take the BP oil spill. Um, When Mm. you have a a spill of that magnitude, all you can do is try and prevent additional harm from happening, but you can't can't stop the harm. The issue here though, is that before you start worrying about the impact on your corporate reputation and what your shareholders are going to do, fundamentally when lives or the environment, or or what I always like to say also is Mm. lives today and future generations tomorrow um, are at stake. And that includes human lives and, and the climate and the environment. Um, when, when that is happening, um, the, the first priority that any company needs to do is to go in and say, how can we prevent what's happening here? Mm. And um, mm. we've seen just too many examples of organizations waiting. So one of the case studies that we focus on quite a lot is the um, Tiger Brands. Um, uh, for for those who aren't familiar with it and and many won't be actually because the the everyday brands that they have a strong African footprint um, um, are not necessarily branded as tiger and they were lucky in that regard. But when they had an outbreak of listeriosis, it first came to their attention in the February uh, and I think that was Mm -hmm. two years ago, time goes by too quickly, but it came to their attention in the February. Um, They only started dealing with it when they were advised by by government and when everything hit the media in the march. Um, So this Mm. question of of waiting, and and, and in the stereosis, people are dying. Um, We see the same thing playing out globally with Boeing Max. Um, They had their first crash um, in one of their planes, the 737 Max, which is operated by Indonesian Airlines. Five years later, the case that perhaps we are all closer to, which was the Kenya, I think it was the Kenyan Airlines, um, case, um, it may have been another one. Um, Ethiopia, area Ethi- Ethiopian, um, went down, and um, only then do we start seeing them take decisive action. Um, so, so to me, number one, it it's really dangerous when your shareholders start knowing about it, and and you know we can cite other cases of companies that acted much faster. Tiger Brands. Um, that case is, is interesting to compare and contrast to a, a case around a Canadian company called Maple Leaf that had a listeriosis outbreak and um, went public with it. And actually, uh, you can't compare all things being equal, but their share price has done far better out of that. Um, if we look at the Grant Thornton case as well around sexual harassment, and that's an internal case, it's not about a disaster in this case mm. but there is a very clear evidence that there were suspicions um if not overt evidence of sexual harassment and to push it under the carpet and not act as quickly as possible to also clear the names of the innocent in this regard um i think mm. is just for any any corporate brand
0: and I, I agree with you and and um and and the problem with the grand faunton case is they still kept the perpetrator on, the alleged perpetrator. He was still doing work for them. So they still hadn't done anything, you know. And I, I think that's what all of us listening to that interview were so horrified about. Um, and then rule two, respond quickly and conspicuously. Don't hide away. Respond quickly and conspicuously. Yeah. And, and we are Do you are, have a, we a, a nice here. example?
1: Absolutely. Uh, um, You know, there are just too many of organizations that waited, that hid, that didn't go in front of the media. Um, I think let's let's talk about why don't companies respond. And I I think sometimes they don't respond because they think, well, we just don't have the full story. So we just won't say Mm. anything. It's not necessarily that they know that something wrong has happened, but they think we'll just wait. It's a very Mm. dangerous thing to do because... As soon as you don't respond, two things happen. Number one, people get frustrated and the perceptions of the brand start increasing because you're seen as not available. You're seen as obscuring something. You're seen as hiding. Um, the second thing that happens is other people step in and they start what's called framing the agenda. They start mm. presenting a narrative um, uh, that might be totally different to the truth, but once that starts happening, you've actually lost your ability to come in and hold as much of the story as you can. Mm-hmm. So so when we think about this, and, and, and there, are, there are lovely examples just around, I mean, in-state in capture, if one looks at when did KPMG start actually talking and engaging with their publics, it was an unacceptably long period of time. Mm-hmm. And my advice here always is that it's absolutely fine to engage with your publics and and a, a plug here that includes your employees, um, to say to them this is what's happened or this is what is alleged to have happened, we are investigating. We'll get back to you. But to say nothing is so dangerous. Um, we saw yeah. we, we cited a, another lovely example in the in the case, which is the the retailer Woolworths um, who. Mm who had a, um, a, a crisis play out that ultimately I don't think damaged them long run, but it was an accusation of them having taken somebody else's brand IP and used it unfairly. Now, the interesting thing in that case is Woolworths is generally very good at coming out in the media. And sometimes these attacks and these crises can happen at times that don't work for us. And this particular um, incident happened in the December when if anybody's in the South African region, you know that business shuts down, it's akin to the European summer. Um, I think the executives were probably on holiday and maybe everybody just thought they could ignore it. You can't. With social media now, the moment that there's some kind of accusation on the brand, if you don't come out and say something really quickly, uh, you can lose the ground. I want to also mention here the importance of who does the talking, because ideally it should not be a company spokesperson. It needs to be the CEO. If the CEO is not available, it should be somebody else who who has is going to be able to tell the story and is seen as being somebody who has authority. Mm. Um, perhaps one one more one more um, caveat here as well, Liz, is that uh, there are times when you discover that something that may well be newsworthy has occurred in your organization. Mm-hmm. In those cases, it's a judgment call you have to make, um, but there is, there is a, um, an interesting um, a strategy um, that you actually preempt the news by coming out yourself. So it's called stealing thunder. And in Stealing Thunder, what you would do, and, and we saw a case last year, I think the Uber case was interesting. They know that they have cases of sexual harassment, and it would be much worse for the brand if, um, if it was picked up on by the media and they would then be on the back foot. So what they did was they came out to the media with, with the stories of how they had discovered this, with the policy that they'd implemented, what they were trying to implement. And so the media can't come and say, there's a story, you knew about this you've been sitting on this. So the, the who talks, talk quickly, you don't have to have the whole story, um, I think is a very important aspect around rule two.
0: Yeah, thanks Nicola, thanks. And then my, my favorite uh, is after ethical breaches, excise. So, so and, and that for me was, it absolutely was my favorite rule in your whole book. <laughs> And may, maybe wow. you can just give us a few comments around that. So, absolutely. When you have a, a breach of values and a breach of ethics,
1: and, and we've seen examples of this, particularly in what I call the high trust industries. So when we start thinking about professional services, um, these, are, these are industries where really, what are you selling beyond your technical expertise and trust? and your reputation. Um, you know, we're, we're, in that, we're in that game. I'm in that game as an academic. Um, the moment where we're in a, uh, playing these services and people can't really evaluate the quality of what they're getting very easily. It's not the same as going off and, you know, buying an ice cream at the shops. Um, uh, we, we argue that it's, it's really, really important that to resolve the crisis, you are going to have to show that you have cut out the rot. And um, Francis used to use the word amputate. And I said to, you know, I'm not sure if it's amputated because that sounds like sometimes I mean, you could be cutting off the top of a leg to sort out um, uh, something that's happened with the knee, but leaving a perfectly good foot or or throwing out a perfectly good foot. And then I was reading something um, and I came across this excision term. And I started thinking about excision, which, of course, is a medical term, that if you have a growth or you have something that is undesirable, that has the propensity to spread, you have to excise. And in the medical um, um, world, you have to excise with clear margins so that you, you cut out the rot as it were. Now, there's a couple, there, there are two really interesting points around this. I mean, the, the first thing is that we've got to think about what is excision. So for um, some companies, it would appear that in um, in-state capture, uh, a, a waving of the finger, a deployment, you mentioned the Grant Thornton case where an employee was simply moved on to becoming a contractor. I'm not mm. talking about that as excision. What I'm talking about with excision is actually having, having the, uh, let me use a, a good word here, the, the, the guts, to, um, to cut somebody out of your system quite publicly and with consequences. And we haven't seen enough of that. So, for example, um, when uh, McKinsey came through and gave an apology um, and, the, and, and the global uh, managing senior partner, Kevin Sneeders, I, th- I think I hosted him at Gibbs. I think he was authentic. I think he was sincere. I think it was admirable that in his first week of taking office globally, he got on the plane from Hong Kong and flew out to apologize to the South African public for McKinsey's role in state capture. But we still... What leaves a, a lingering doubt there is we still have no evidence that a number of those transgressors um, were dismissed where appropriate, were reported to authorities, and the charges where appropriate would be brought against them. Um, you know, similarly, mm-hmm. even in KPMG, and, and it, it's always a question of who's responsible versus who's accountable, but you have the then CEO, um, CEO Trevor Hull, standing up and saying, I am accountable for this. Yes, he resigned, but he resigned with a full payout. So that's not proper excision, and it leaves a, a, a bad taste here. Um, you know when that when that happens. So I, I think the importance of excision is, is critical. I have been asked, what do you do when, if you were to excise, there'd be nothing left? And um, this question was asked to me in the context of state capture um, yeah. in South Africa. If, if you were to excise, if for example, the whole um, uh, organization or a government or something is rotten, what do you do? Um, two, two responses to that. Firstly, I think that if you have um, a, a subsidiary of a firm and it's rotten what has to happen is at one level up in other words um leadership so so i would have expected in the kpmg case to see their global leaders step in and manage this crisis and mm-hmm. we just didn't we were told they were coming and visiting but i saw no commentary from global leadership in some cases, though, as in where you have really corrupt governments, um, I got into a really interesting conversation with an academic at uh, the University of Stellenbosch, and she said to me, she doesn't think excision is the right metaphor. She thinks you actually have to treat it almost as an addiction. You have to confront that this has been happening, and you have to deal with it as an addiction. Um, so this is all getting a bit up in, the, up in the sky. But if a piece and a small piece of an organization quite often is rotten, you have to cut it out. I think one of the people yeah. that that, is, all accounts has been very good and very passionate about this has been Stephen van Koller at EOH. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole of EOH certainly is not rotten, but there were issues of corruption. And I think he's dealt with them publicly. Um, charges have been laid. They've been reported to the police. And, and I think that's critical.
0: Yeah, and I've heard Stephen van Koller again on The Money Show. And, and you know, he speaks from the heart and he says, I came here and there was no corporate governance whatsoever. I couldn't even find a minute book. And so I've started yeah. now to clean up EOH. It was a fantastic Uh, way of actually seeing the problem. And just on this section, um, Nicola, I just wanted to to end off with the quote from our now chairman of KPMG, Wiseman and Kulu, who you have quoted in your book, Under Rule 5, actually, Mm. who says, the company's mind, its ethics are the ethics of the leadership at any given time. Deal with those effectively and then when you resurrect, make don't make the same mistake again. And I think it's just a, that's just a wonderful summary of, of how KPMG are learning to come through uh, their crises over the last period. <clears throat> so, um, and I, it to, I was going to Go just ahead. interrupt you. And say
1: something that I think, if I'd had to have a Rule 11 in the book um, that we yeah. didn't, and I, it was an area I'm very passionate about is, All companies are going to make mistakes. We are going to have crises. It's not a question of of if, it's a question of when. Our ability to actually dissect and learn, our ability to Mm. publicly share what happened in our organization. So when you've excised um, and you sit down with the the survivors and you sense make and you say, what happened? And how are we collectively going to work to make sure it never happens again um, is is part of crisis management and often underestimated.
0: Yeah, and that's very powerful to actually learn from something that you've lived through and to say, well, it's not going to happen again because it's, it's now in our culture. It's who we are. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Um, and, and then Nicola, I, I, I suppose my kids and your kids are probably saying the same things. They keep saying to us, sorry, mom, sorry, mom. And I keep saying to him, kids, sorry doesn't make it right. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There needs to be some sort of behavioral change when you guys do something wrong. And against this backdrop, again, I, I'd like to introduce a wonderful quote in Nicola and Francis' book on page 71 by a well-known uh, lawyer in town. And, and this is so true for me. He says, there is generally no point winning a battle in a court of law. Some time down the line, but losing now in the court of public opinion. The loss in the court of public opinion can often be devastating to a corporate reputation. Of course, companies will want to act prudently and must consider, for example, provisions in contracts with insurers before they apologize if one is appropriate but in my experience the legal issues can usually be appropriately managed and should not detract from a corporate doing the right thing which will often restore the company's credibility with its major stakeholders in the public i thought it was wonderful daria's quote to you Nicola. i really did and, and so when faced with a crisis which can cause reputational harm, and this is what scares me the most, I suppose, as putting my lawyer hat on and my leader hat on, should you apologize if the apology means that you're admitting liability?
1: So the, there was one quote where um, Francis and I both felt quite strongly that this question of hiding behind what lawyers say um, in other cases, it's the insurers, um, was, uh, it's just not the right thing to do. But we felt it was very important that we should actually get um, a quote from a well-known lawyer because Mm. um, it's all very well us saying that, but we are not lawyers. Um, And I, you know, Liz, I I think these are every, I mentioned every crisis is different, but I can't help Mm. but compare here um, the Maple Leaf uh, story versus the Tiger yeah. brand story, where Tiger Brands just yeah. refused. They, they, they refused to acknowledge wrongdoing on their part, and they were penalized heavily for it. So to me, number one, b- pragmatically, let's put the morals aside for a moment. Pragmatically, if it's going to come out that you got this wrong, why would you not say sorry now? The chances are it's going mm-hmm. to go to court and it's going to come out that you've got it wrong it's better to say sorry. Morally, of course, there's an issue also about regret and about contrition. And we see, we know what half-hearted apologies look like or very mm. qualified apologies look like. So what happens is that you, you reduce the trust. Um, there is, I, I would never recommend that you say sorry if you haven't done something wrong. And it's very, very mm. important that if you've got a company with a strong culture, Um, We spoke, and I don't know in detail of their culture, but we spoke about the insurer my way in the book who had Mm -hmm. an allegation of racism. And it was fascinating to me because the CEO immediately said, we really don't think this is the case, but we promise we're investigating. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't think that this has happened, you don't say it it would never happen on my watch. Mm But you know, you would say I don't want to make any judgments until we've actually investigated. So you know, one wouldn't go. I'm mm. so sorry if that's happened, but um, mm. there are times when, when to be able to say sorry, you actually have to go through some sort of process of atonement. And uh, you know, I still mm. think if anybody's ever looking for a heartfelt apology, and we write about it in the book, and, mm. and it struck me, the CEO of JetBlue, who gave on on video. Um, this apology when actually it wasn't totally their fault because of storms in the US but they hadn't planned for it properly they hadn't managed for it properly um, you know if we look at principles of social justice um, and perhaps it goes back to our children it's all very well saying sorry but number one you better know what you're saying sorry for somebody says well, what are you apologizing for you better have an answer for that number two you better say why, what you've learned about why it happened and what you're putting in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, and number three, you, you need to show appropriate emotional resonance. So a wooden mm-hmm. apology just doesn't cut it. And to be quite honest, mm-hmm. if you don't have a CEO with that kind of emotional connection, well, maybe it's time to get another CEO. But then you better make sure that you're actually bringing in more than one person to actually talk about what this means. Because ideally, if you don't have a a CEO who doesn't have the human connection, because at the end of the day, as much as we speak about business, we are people,
0: you know, working
1: and and buying from people.
0: Yeah, and it's, that, it's the empathy that they have, you, you know, and a wooden apology versus someone who's genuinely distraught. I mean, I mean, I mean you can't compare, can you? Finally, one of the things that, that, I mean, I just thought it was fantastic that you referred to in your book was um, a book written by a, cha- by a chap called Carrie Chapman on the five love languages to explain why relationships succeed because our tanks are full or fail because someone's gauge has hit empty and that brings me to rule eight which i think is just so important and it says respect the power of relationships and perhaps you can give us some of your insights into the investments that organizations make to build Uh, trust and how in a time of crisis these investments can be pulled on like a bank account uh, to help us navigate through those crises. I think we're seeing this play out
1: every day with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and, and Liz, it goes back to this, this question of, of, of human. Um, uh, Stephen Grazer, who's a, a, phenomenal academic and, and an expert. He's at Harvard Business School in the field of, um, corporate reputation, um, speaks about the reservoir. Um, he speaks about mm-hmm. the fact that, that, that you, you, you build trust and you, you know, just as you have a bank account, um, mm-hmm. it gets, it, to your point, it gets topped up. Now, it's important that I differentiate between a reservoir and being held to high standards. It's quite interesting that um, if, if I compare, there was research done in South Africa again, and I'm sorry for the South African focus here, um, but there was research done comparing a number of South African brands. When your publics don't expect a lot from you, quite often they actually don't even bother complaining which is why you will see brands with a high degree of trust. It's almost that tall poppy syndrome. Their customers are quicker to complain because we hold them to a higher standard of account. Um, mm. and, and and so in that case, that's actually something, it's, it's a good thing. It's very important that you show that you're listening to your customers. So what we're not saying is that because you have managed this well, your customers or, or whoever it is will never complain. Uh, you may get more complaints mm. because they actually value the relationship with you. But what we are saying is yeah. when the chips are down, and, and I think for all of us, uh, and Francis and I make this point constantly in the book, we're all in personal relationships. We all mm. know that you can get to a point in a personal relationship where actually you just can't take one more breach and you walk away, mm. and sometimes do worse things than walk away. But in other cases, where you know somebody has made an effort, where you know that generally they are good, they are trying, they have heard you, they have listened in the past, Um, you're far more likely to be able to actually repair those relationships. Now, in the context of internal stakeholders who are a group I'm absolutely passionate about, if you don't respect the power of your employees, um, if you Mm -hmm. don't respect the importance of building a culture that tolerates and actually welcomes uh, conflicting views, and I'm not suggesting that when you make a decision, your employees don't go along, but in these cultures with very high power distances where employees feel fearful to say something. Mm -hmm. This is often, for me, a very bad warning sign for um, potential um, ethical breaches, but certainly Mm -hmm. corporate reputation issues happening later. Had Travis Kalanick built a culture at Uber that was far more sensitive, um, had this happened at Grant Thornton, I question that the issues, the, the corporate reputation issues that both of those organizations um, had around sexual harassment would have played out. So um, you know, to, yeah. to, the question is, 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 what is it that fills up the tank? It's listening, showing that you care and acting on it. And um, with employees, a critical aspect in corporate um, uh, reputation management is keeping your employees in the loop. I think it is one mm. of the most degrading experiences for any employee to read something about their employer in the newspaper mm. or on social media before the employer's even taken the time to tell them. Um, and, and, and that Absolutely. is something that should never happen.
0: Yeah and and I, I mean just following on that Nicola it's it's also giving your employees a safe space to actually speak out or to tell you things that they're not comfortable with and and often we don't see that. I, I mean with this whole issue with Sassel and it's it's failure on on its i think its gas plants in the US yeah, everyone called. knew yeah. it was wrong and but everyone was too scared to tell the people in authority that there was a problem. And so there there, there was a sickness within Cecil at that time. And I mean, now they've obviously got a new CEO who's well aware of that problem and is trying to build the organization again. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's exactly that. And if you can't if you can't hear and and
1: you know see that that feedback is actually so valuable. Um, you know, on mm. a on a note that perhaps is is really important, I think, in corporate governance, Liz, and it's not something I cover in the book, but I'm working on a big project at the moment around whistleblowing, and um, mm. this is something I'm very passionate about. Is we've seen been doing some interviews. Um, I actually haven't been involved in the interviews, but I'm now involved in in going through everything and discerning what's been going on. And um, it's just quite incredible the extent to which um, whistleblowers have not been protected. Now, ideally, you want a culture where somebody doesn't have to blow; they can actually come out and say it. But I think the, the protection of whistleblowers and looking after the sanctity of whistleblowers, um, who are really the, the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to preventing harm <laughs> happening, um,
0: is critical. And we, we have a duty to manage that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. No, thanks, Nicola. And I, I, I think that's kind of our time at an end. Um, but my heartfelt thanks to you, Nicola, uh, for being available, for, for coming on, and for sharing your insights. Thank you, Liz. Thanks so much. Um, you know, I, I want to also endorse the passion that you've shown because I think
1: um, where these issues are just seen as purely regulatory, Um, as opposed to something that that we're all people and and managing this with a sense of passion and seeing that it's going Mm. to build better organizations. It's not about more bureaucracy and more rules, Um,
0: but at the Mm. end of the day, it's just valuing um, human beings. Well, thank you, Nicola, and bye-bye that was conversations in business with rsm experience the power of being understood experience rsm visit rsmza.co.za